Welcome to the wonderful world of wine. We are your hosts, Kim Simone and Mark Lindsay, and together we will explore wine topics, trends, technology, and tastes, and so much more. listening to The Wonderful World of Wine with Mark and Kim. And today we wanted to talk a little bit about the different chemical composition of wine that leads to all those wonderful aromas and flavors that people pick up when they are tasting their wines. And sometimes it gets a little bit confusing with all these different things that you can be smelling and tasting in your wine. And people kind of scratch their heads sometimes when we start to delve into uh, the different things that you might be noticing. And people are like, so if I'm smelling peach, is there peach in my wine? Or, you know, all these other kind of sometimes funky things that you're smelling. And really what it comes down to is no, you know, there are no added flavors. What you are getting is is the flavors that develop through the process of fermentation that are naturally occurring in that grape juice and in some of the things that happen in the winery, whether it be aging in oak barrels or different varieties of yeast. But there are a lot of things that contribute to the aromas and the flavors in that particular glass of wine. Do you get this question from folks uh, in the store when they're shopping, Mark? Yeah, well, not so much a question as a weird look when you say, do you like to smell in your wine? If you say a peach or an apple and they're Mm -hmm. like, why, you know, why are those fruits in my wine? But the, the this article, which was in Vinpair, which is a very good educational website if you've never been to it, they started out as this real good infographics site when infographics were hot, but they're coming out with more and more of these educational things about wine. And flavors, to me, if I smell a nice aromatic wine, um, right away I'm into it. Mm-hmm. Uh, before I even taste it, I love a, a nice aromatic wine. And what you smell and what I smell is different. We're different. Same thing, what we taste is different. So explaining aromatics or learning what you like for your profile is key. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the differences between tasting a wine and just drinking a wine for enjoyment, a lot of that has to do with that smell. Because if you're sitting down to enjoy a glass of wine at a restaurant, you might not necessarily think to stick your nose in that glass and give it a nice sniff and figure out what it smells like before you take a sip. You know, sometimes that is just not something that you think to do if you are more engaged in drinking a wine as opposed to tasting it or trying to put words to what you think you're tasting and smelling to it. So for me, if I smell a wine and there are things in there that don't really appeal to me, it's instantly sort of off-putting. It's like, well, okay, I'll taste it, but I'm kind of going into it thinking I might not like this wine because I don't really like how it smells. And sometimes they'll surprise you. Sometimes the the notes on the nose are very different than what you're tasting on the palate. So always, always give it a chance. Yeah, most of the time what you smell, you you will taste. So there's always that one surprising, you smell something, but on your palate, you're tasting something totally right. different, which is the great thing about uh, exploring wine. And when we talked about the chem- the chemistry, each grape varietal, grape type, has different chemical compounds that lead to these different characteristics. Right. So there's all sorts of charts and tables and aroma wheels that will tell you if it's this fruit, uh, this berry, tree fruit. It's It can get very deep, but I always like to say in like a basic thing, if, if it's a white wine, say you smell or taste apple. If it's a red <laughs> wine, say you smell or taste cherry. And you can't be embarrassed by it, but it's it's a profile. So that's my kind of go-to. Do and you if have you something? smell or taste something thing in a wine and nobody else's, that doesn't mean that you're wrong. You have very different experiences 
for the things that you have smelled over the course of your life or tasted over the course of your life. It's very, very subjective and it's very individual. And you know, I might be smelling tangerine and you might be smelling, I don't know, navel orange, but that doesn't mean that you're wrong and I'm right or vice versa. And it's very interesting because on a chemical level, these things are the same as you would find in in a lot of fruits and in a lot of spices and in other things that are out there in nature. And, And it's very interesting with, you know, certain things like these chemical compounds that are found in like bell peppers and green grass that smell these kind of vegetal green peppery aromas you find these in wines and it's the exact same compound whether it's in the pepper or whether it's in your glass of Sauvignon Blanc they're called metho oh, I can't even get this right methoxypyrazines and Sounds it's good to me. very commonly found in grapes like Sauvignon Blanc and Cabernet Sauvignon you know sometimes you'll stick your nose in that glass of Cabernet and you'll get a whiff of green bell pepper it's it's not your imagination you know they're on a chemical level that's actually in in the glass not that there's green bell pepper in the glass but at a chemical level it's the same chemicals that are found um, in that glass of wine and in that green bell pepper just naturally occurring yeah and i I think we find when we do tasting events as soon as you mention what you smell or what you taste (laughs) it puts it in your mind and yeah yeah i do smell that or taste that but everybody has such a different thought process of what they're they relate it to things like you always relate things to a Christmas like smelling wine, smells, which yeah. is, it's, you know, and that's how they tell you to train your memory to to learn aromas and right. flavors. So you need to tie it to your own experiences because exactly. then it's going to make sense to you and it's going to stay lodged in your memory. And they say that smell is the sense that is tied most closely to our memories. And they've actually found this by doing brain scans. So smell and taste really can hit off those memory receptors for you. And it's a great way to hone your wine tasting skills is if you tie them to those memories because then they are going to make an impact in your own brain. It's interesting you said the memory thing because I just read a book on that and this woman actually put herself in an in a MRI scan while she was tasting wine. Oh, that's so cool. And they they could see parts of her brain being used that are not accessed by everybody. I so, want to do that. Yeah, so she, it was scientifically proven she was a better taster because she was using sections of her brain to taste that other people do not. That's so interesting. But you can train your brain to learn these things. Right. So I, for me, one of the more frustrating things is I I have a glass of wine in front of me and I'm smelling something. I do this to you all the time. I say, what are you getting from this? Because I want you to tell me what I'm missing, (laughs) right? So I'm smelling something. You can't quite put your finger on it. Yeah, I cannot. There's something there. If it's a fruit or it's a floral or or I just can't. It's not in my brain at the time. So when someone tells me, it's like, yeah, that's what it is. My husband does this to me all the time too. He'll be, you know, I'll pour glasses of wine and be like, what's that thing I'm smelling? And I'll throw out a term and he'll be like yes it's mushrooms or something like that yeah but then i also find like we need to be careful when we do this in a class because you know not only do we have a lot of practice doing that but we're also the authority in the class because we're the ones who are teaching it so we have to be careful that we don't sort of override the students own perceptions and be throwing the things that we're experiencing in there too much so that they're only picking yeah, up the, the things that we're saying. Things, yeah. We want everyone to have their their own opinion and their own um, subjective experience. That's, that's one of the things when I go to a professional tasting, they pour the room. And there's always someone in the front of the room who yells out what they're smelling before you even <laughs> have in your glass. And now your whole experience is kind of shot right. because that's what you're thinking about. So. 
there's a there's a lot to explore the more you taste the more you develop these different profiles to you like and what you don't like and the, and the key is use them when you're purchasing when you go to a retailer when you go to a restaurant tell them what you like to smell what you like to taste and don't think it's crazy right if you say i want to taste a christmas tree or smell a christmas tree <laughs> wine tell them that and someone who knows wine will be able to to help you out right and they may understand that you know you're looking for something spicy or you're looking for something fruity and if you just have a few of those terms that you can use with that wine professional that you're dealing with they'll be able to help you find a bottle that you like and it's not just the the aromas and the flavors you also need to think about the textural elements of the wine too because there are different acids and there are tannins and reds and there are all these things that go on in a wine that might make it appealing to you and not to somebody else or you know just hitting your your particular profile that you that you are partial to yeah don't don't be afraid to say exactly what you smell or taste because there's no right or wrong mm-hmm. answer there's a chart of standard suggestions but what you smell or what you taste is is your own right. personality and so. you might like higher acid wines higher tannin wines other people might not and that doesn't make your wine a good wine or a bad wine it just makes it the wine that's more appropriate for you and we see that i think when we do tastings one of the things we do too is we'll ask the room how many people love this wine how many people hate this mm-hmm. wine and it's always pretty much broken yeah, out There's, it's all the, over the place you very rarely have 100 percent people loving it 100 percent people hating it someone will always like it someone will always hate it so that's just the great thing about the wine world Welcome back to the wonderful world of wine. We are your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone, exploring all things wine with you. Our next topic will be how to tell if wine will age. And this was from Wine Enthusiast Magazine. And uh, Kim, I'm always hit with this question. I am too. What will age? And the, the one stat I always love to say at all events is they say 90, up to 90% of the wine that people buy is consumed within two hours. So I think that's a crazy stat. It's crazy. So why? Why do we care, you know, which one will age if we're drinking 90%? So that leaves 10% of the consumer who need to know what will age. I don't know that I buy that 90% because I can see people buying wines to take home to drink for dinner that night. But then I speak to so many people who are like, I have three bottles of wine in my liquor cabinet or in my kitchen. How do I know if they're still good? Or I got a gift for Christmas last year. How do I know if I should drink it? You know, we get those questions so frequently that I think it's worth it to to have have an answer and to give some people some good advice as to how to look at their bottle of wine and know whether it's past its prime or whether they should keep it for a little bit longer or when is it really going to taste its best because we yeah. do we do hear this a lot and most of the time it's well past because Sometimes. people just don't know what research to do to which bottles to age another common thing i get is having a special event what type of wine should i buy to age it you know i want to use it at a, at a wedding and eat and drink it 10 years from now at an right. anniversary or a childbirth so so there are certain grapes or types of wine that you can buy to age. So Kim, let us know what you think of which one's an ageable wine. So first and foremost, um, you want a wine that has relatively high tannins because the tannins and their antioxidant properties are what is going to allow a wine to age and to age gracefully. So you want a wine with balance. So you want wines that have high tannins and pretty good acidic structure, but those tannins are going to come from grape varieties like Cabernet Sauvignon 
Sauvignon. You know, that's really the number one wine that a lot of people go to for an age-worthy wine. And whether it be a Cabernet from Napa or Sonoma, or whether it be a Cabernet-based wine from Bordeaux, those really are the touchstone wines of things that are going to last for, you know, we're talking decades here. We're talking improving over the course of 10 years, 20 years, sometimes 30 years. But then you also have those wines like um, Barolo and Barbaresco, the better wines from Northern Italy that are based on the Nebbiolo group that are also, they're wickedly tannic and really only soften over the course of 10 or 20 years. And we're not talking about, you know, a $15 bottle of wine here. We're talking generally more expensive wines are meant to age for for longer and to improve with time because those more expensive wines are going to be coming from better vineyard sites to be handled with more care in the winery. They might have more attention to detail from either the folks that are in the vineyard or in the winery itself. They might have been aged in better oak barrels, just overall have more attention paid to them. So it's a higher dollar and then it also really is meant to um, meant to get better as time goes on. Yeah, acidity, tannins, and the other key thing for me is the region it's from. I mean, you hear, I mean, even if you know very little about wine, you've always heard about these great Bordeaux or these great wines from Burgundy. Certain regions of the world are known for ageable wines. So you can think of that as kind of a guide too of where things are aged, champagne, certain styles. So there's a lot of guide. Now, they, one of the other things they touched on um, in this was what they call a two two-day test. So you'd open a bottle, taste it, put it a cork back in, put it on the counter, and then two days later or the next day, taste it. If it changes dramatically in a bad way, then you know it's not ageable, but it could change in a good way. So you think, well, yeah, this can be put down in age. Not the, the open bottle, but an unopened bottle right. to put down. And this was more directed towards people that have found a favorite wine, want to buy a case of it or half a case of it and put it down in their cellar and see how it develops over the course of a couple of years. But I do like this, uh, this two day, three day test. I think it gives you a good way of looking at how wine is going to respond to oxygen, which is really what this is testing because oxygen is really the enemy of wine. It is what breaks a wine down. And really the the whole concept of aging a wine is exposing it to very minute quantities of oxygen over the course of a year, two years, and more and seeing how the oxygen breaks down the wine and sometimes it improves it but there's always a curve so nothing is going to last forever because wine really is a living breathing thing and if it tastes better after two days of exposure to oxygen or three days of exposure to oxygen then you probably have something that is going to last for a decent amount of time in the bottle and then taste better yeah it's it's great advice if you drink a certain brand all the time this is one of the the most fun things you can do with your wine totally Put one, buy two bottles, put one bottle in a safe environment, stored properly, and then try it a year later or take two bottles and try one a year, one or two years later. And you'll just, you'll be surprised. Uh, many times we used aged wines at event and people do not, it goes back to this drinking within two hours. Many people just consume it within a year or two years and very rarely have anything five, 10 years mm-hmm. old. And it's a totally different profile of the wine. So you might find yourself liking something that's 
it's aged more than you do what you're currently drinking. So it's a, it's a fun thing to do. It's not something that I think a lot of wine consumers think about think all that about, often yeah. or have really much experience tasting. We mostly drink our wines on the younger side. And sometimes a wine that you might taste that has some age on it is so different from how it was when it was younger that you might immediately think, oh, this has gone bad. It's not necessarily that it's gone bad. It's just that its flavor profile has so changed because of the age on it. It might not taste particularly good to you, but there might be people who like those qualities in a wine and it might taste just absolutely wonderful to them. So again, it comes back to what is your own personal preference. But I think it, I think aged wines can be a little bit of an acquired taste. And there are some that I like and there are some that I really don't like a whole lot. I tend to lean a little bit more towards the younger age of the wines that I drink. So I, I like them a little bit younger, but it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting to taste the whole, the whole gamut of really young fresh wine and how does it change and how do those flavors, how do those flavors change over time? Yeah, it's all, it's all personal preference, but you have to hold out and put one down or find an aged wine. I and mean, when you walk into a retail store, you very rarely see anything over four years of age mm-hmm. because it just sells out. People don't really sell it and then bring it back to, to the shelf to sell. So the way I love to explain this and tell me if you agree or not, Kim, but a young wine, when you're talking about an aroma, a young wine has just an aroma. One Fruity two, aroma though, usually. Yeah, one or two general profiles that you can pick out. But as it ages, it develops more. So you, they say it has a bouquet. It's it, more things going on. Now it's, it, it, as an aroma, it's a red fruit. And then as, as a bouquet, it's, it's cherries. It's, you're getting deeper and deeper into this thought process because the wine evolves. So, I mean, if you haven't done it or explored an aged wine, seek one out. Or if you're, you're loyal to a certain wine, put half a case down. And just if, especially if you find the wine, that vintage is phenomenal, save it for a while and see, see what happens. And take some notes so that you remember because it can be hard to keep tasting notes in your in your mind and your impressions on a particular wine. So if you are going to do that and you've got, you know, six bottles and you take one out a year and you try it, write a little bit of something down and keep it in like a favorite cookbook. And so you can compare what the wine tasted like a year ago versus what it tastes like now. And you can gauge those changes and then you'll know at which point you think it's it's really at its best. Yeah. Every once in a while you meet someone who's a collector and just has a phenomenal memory. And you, you were talking about there are stages where a wine can sit and and it's at its peak and then it can come back. It will draw it will drop its mm-hmm. peak and then come back. So I've had people tell me they put wine down for twenty years. They open and say, It's at its dull point right, right now. It needs another five years. If I tried it five years ago, it might have been fine, but today it's at its dull. So there's all this weird chemical reactions going on that can change right. how it when you pick it. Sometimes we, we describe that as the wine has fallen asleep. Yeah. And it'll be asleep for a little while or it's going through a dumb stage. You but know, it's it funny. gets quiet and then after another couple of years, it will come back full force with all of its flavors. Yeah, it, but it's just funny hearing a true collector or, or a store of wine when they say picked up an 82 Bordeaux and it's not, it wasn't, I'll, I'll get another bottle in another five years. So oh, it's like, geez. wow, like you so, that is so the, this is where the 10% I think is true yeah. because you don't hear that every day. It's very unique. And people don't, sometimes don't have the, the monies to just put five bottles down. Mm-hmm. So that's why it is a costly investment, but it, it can be a very fun experiment to do. 
Welcome back. You're listening to The Wonderful World of Wine with Kim and Mark. And today we are talking about an article that we found on Ink Brand website. What is the difference between a $10 bottle of wine and a $100 bottle of wine? And some people would cheekily answer $90. But we wanted to dive a little bit deeper into what are the actual differences that are that you can either experience in the flavor of a wine that's $10 versus $100 or what are all the cost factors that go into producing a more expensive bottle of wine. And there really are a lot of different factors that sometimes you have to think about. What what was the one that stood out for you the most, Mark? This is always one of my kind of geeky wine topics to always look into. So anytime you see a bottle that's under $10 and it's coming from halfway across the world, even if it's coming from California, you think to yourself as a, as a retailer, you're doing the numbers in your head. How can you charge $5 for a bottle when the bottle alone costs this, the cork costs this, the, what amount of that cost is going into the quality of the grapes used to make it? So it gets you thinking what you're drinking. I like that. Thinking what you're drinking. Yeah. And we talk about this a lot when people pick up something, a food product at the store. You're looking at the label and you're, you might compare, well, why am I paying maybe $2 for this butter and $4 for this butter? But when you at wine, people might jump to that $10 bottle versus that $20 bottle because of just the $10 difference, but mm-hmm. not looking at why is that cost different. Right. And oftentimes it really doesn't come down to the cost of the grapes. What is more expensive is talking about the land. You know, what is the cost per acre of the particular place that that wine comes from? Is it a vast tract of flat vineyards somewhere in Australia that maybe is a whole lot cheaper? Or is it someplace in, say, Napa, California or in Burgundy in France where the acreage is so ridiculously expensive and the I would say the pedigree of that land is so high where they have a reputation of making really high quality wines and that's why that land is so expensive. I mean, we're talking upwards of like a million dollars an acre. Yeah, and there's a lot of countries also that they regulate how much can be grown, what can be grown. So those regulations add to quality, or well, I would say quality, but quantity mm-hmm. volumes that adds to cost. So you can't sell a $10 bottle if the government's regulating telling you have to restrict. Like you said, the, the land, the type of grape, the key for me also in this is to look at if it's at a certain price point, you think it's too low, is all that money going into marketing mm-hmm. and not the product? That's a big sort of mystery mystery number, how much money is being spent to try to get you to buy this bottle of wine versus how much money is being spent on labor in the vineyard or paying for a good winemaker or all the hands that do the picking or that pay attention over the course of the entire season to make sure that you have really good quality grapes versus a lot of quantity that can then go into making more wine at not necessarily the the highest quality that that location could possibly produce. Yeah, and that might, you might love buying the same $5 bottle of wine. Um, a lot of times we play these games where we'll put two bottles in a bag not knowing what they are. And many times people don't detect too easily which one's the higher priced one. They're told, if you're told a price, they will always pick out the higher priced one, which is kind of an interesting thing. But you, you need 
to really, there's so much out there now with the internet that you can research and find out why this is so inexpensive. Is it production? Um, and, and it's easy to find out. It is. And, you know, something along, even as simple as, was this aged in a new oak barrel? Because oak barrels are wicked expensive. We're talking like over $2,000 for a new good quality French oak barrel. So if you're drinking a Cabernet that has legitimately been aged in one of those barrels, that is certainly going to add cost to that wine. And then figure into that, you know, the cost of the glass and the cost of the cork and these other factors over and above the the people that have to be paid to make the wine and then those marketing dollars. So there's a lot, there's really a lot that goes into it. The oak thing is always interesting because you can say a wine is oak. It could be chemical oak and it's a lot cheaper. So pieces of oak. Pieces of oak. Yeah, it, it's not a regulated thing. So you can say it's an oaked wine, but there's a big cost difference that goes in, into that wine. One of the other things I always look for as a wine buyer, retail side, and as a shopper is to get my money's worth. So if I'm comparing two wines and, and ones, they both say $10 wines, I it can easily research if one's making 200,000 cases and the other guy's making 20,000 cases for the same amount of money, I'm going with the less production because I, I'm assuming better care and quality is going to that product. Do you, do you kind of have that mentality when you shop or? Yeah. And I think a lot of people for a lot of food products, they, they think that way, that if you're going to be buying something that costs you $10 from a small local farm, you know who's picked it. You feel like you're getting more bang for your buck for that as opposed to something that maybe is more mass produced or trucked in from Chile, obviously trucked in from Chile, but from a different country, you know, sort of off season and you're spending the same amount of money for it. I think people really do see value with artisanal produced foods and beverages and that wine really plays into this. And that's where we've seen the organic movement is booming. And I think people like like the story with those smaller production things. And if you feel like you're getting better value for the same amount of money as you would buying something that's a little bit more of a commercial product. I think that that's very appealing to people. Yeah, and sometimes the story adds to yeah. you know a cult following. But then that story kind of price. plays into the marketing as well. You yeah. know, some people so you will make to, up a story that can go in a bad in a bad way. But you, you were talking about the cost as a, as a buyer. That's one of the things you always try to find. What I feel is the best value for the money to sell. It's hotter and hotter. And the other thing with the question for in the state of Massachusetts, it's a three-tier system. So if a bottle's $5, the winery sells it to a distributor, which I then buy from at, at a store level. So there's three people who actually mocked it up to get it to $5. So what at the first start at the winery, what did that cost? Right. You know, a dollar, 50 cents a bottle. It's just amazing when you think of price that way. And the other way I look at it is something coming across the world, Spain or Portugal, and you're paying $10. They're phenomenal values mm -hmm. because it's coming halfway across the world and still at that price point going through how many people at a price, I say gouging, but price mock-up. Um, so it's interesting both ways. And then you can still get good quality things that are very pleasant to drink and can have some, some interest to them that they're not just tasting like the same old, same old. And that is one of, I think, the benefits of trying things from other countries that, you know, they might not have the price tag on them of something from a more familiar area, but just, you know, explore and try new things and you know, sometimes, you know, take a chance. Because if you're willing to spend, you know, $12 on a bottle, why not go get something from a region that you might not be familiar with? And you might be pleasantly surprised and find a new favorite. Yeah. And experiment with the blind taste and thing. Put, you know, have someone put two bottles of the same, say, grape, or, you know, 
two cabs in a bag, one at the $10 level, one at the maybe the $20 level, the five and the 10, and taste them blind. Pour them, don't know which is which, and see if you can detect there's a cost differential of a wine. Uh, It may surprise you. It, It really might. Thank you for joining us and listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We are Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone. You can find uh, all these topics and other podcasts on our Facebook page, The Wonderful World of Wine. Cheers. Wine, wine.